Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world. The people, the relationships, the news, the politics, and the money that goes with being in this world. Stick around. Hey everyone, welcome back. So glad to have you here on what has been a shockingly busy summer. <laughs> Listen, if you haven't had a chance, uh, go back a couple episodes. We just started the nonprofit horror story summer series. That's where we're showcasing and highlighting some of the best nonprofit horror stories that have been featured right here on the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. Check it out. We've got three really great stories. And one of the great things, I'm sharing stories from my own personal journey in the nonprofit world. I'm talking 18 years worth of stories. Because if you've noticed, I haven't shared any of my nonprofit horror stories on any episodes. And so I've been sharing them exclusively on the Summer Series. So be sure to check that out. I've got the next one coming July 28th. We're going to do it the last Friday of June, the last Friday of July, and maybe the last Friday of August if uh, you know we get enough traction. And another thing that we did on Friday, it was totally unexpected, but we had to do it. We did a rapid reaction to the Supreme Court striking down student loan forgiveness up to $20,000 uh, across the nation for as many as 43 million borrowers. And so listen, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that for the next six, seven minutes. Uh, I've got some more opinions, but before we do, be sure to follow us on Instagram. If you haven't already at the nonprofit insider, I've got it in the show notes. You can follow us there and then be sure to again, follow us and subscribe on Apple podcasts or on Spotify podcasts. If you haven't had the ability. All right, listen, give me about six, seven minutes. Let's talk about the Supreme court one more time and student loan forgiveness. So like I was saying, on Friday's episode, I went into a rapid reaction mode, 18 minutes, detailing some of my thoughts of the Supreme Court striking down that student loan forgiveness plan from the Biden administration and really sharing some thoughts on some of the effects that I believe you're going to start seeing in the nonprofit space because of that strike down. Over the weekend, and look, we're busy. Uh, it's 4th of July weekend, such an, such an interesting time, right? We got 4th of July weekend. You know how it is. I divorced me. <laughs> so I got the kid this weekend. He's with me. He was with his mom over the last you know couple of days. Well, he was with me this weekend. So I haven't had a chance to thoroughly read that 77-page breakdown from the Supreme Court, but I did have an ability to read all of the, basically the intro statement, I was able to read all of Chief Justice's um, majority opinion for the uh, court. It was a 63 split, so he wrote for the majority. And also Chief Justice Barrett wrote as well. Again, this is nerd vision for the next you know four or five minutes. So if you want to dip out, I would not blame Skip Ahead a couple of minutes. And so Chief Justice Barrett, or excuse me, Justice Barrett also wrote an opinion for the majority. And then uh, Justice Kagan wrote the dissent. Listen, I'm not going to get too deep into it because if you want to listen to some law 
podcast. Recommend me some, and I'll put some on the show notes one day. Two two things that really, really stuck out to me. The first is that the majority opinion, the six justices that said that this student loan program cannot go forward. One of the interesting aspects that came up that I kept seeing over and over when reading this particular opinion is that they said, or they say that the Secretary of Education basically overreached in their ability to cancel student loans for this many people. So one of the things we know is that when COVID really got started, one of the things that at the t- then time, education, Department of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos started to pause student loans payments and student loan interest. And that was under the guidance, of course, of Donald Trump, President Trump. And then when President Biden was elected, that continuation or that pause continued to go into effect. So when Dr. Manuel Cardona, he's the Secretary of Education under the Biden administration came in, they continued to pause payments and continued to pause interest. According to the Supreme Court, based off their ruling and interpretation of the HEROES Act, which came out of the 2011 attacks, the the Secretary of Education is actually the one who says we are pausing student loans. Now, of course, we know this came down from President Biden because he was talking about on the campaign trail, but it is the Secretary of Education that actually does the power or has the power to say we are canceling student loans. The Supreme Court says, hey, in doing canceling student loans, uh, if you went to a for-profit college that is no longer accredited, we can cancel those student loans. The Supreme Court says, yes, the Secretary of Education has the ability to do that. The Secretary of Education also has the ability to pause payments, to cancel payments for certain military members. Basically has the power to cancel student loans but not within this particular instance because the intention of the HEROES Act does not allow for the secretary, for for him or her or them to have the power to cancel student loans for this many people. Okay, that was the first thing. The second thing that really came up is how much the dissent talked about and this, the dissent was written by Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson hopped on uh, her particular dissent in the, of the, for the court. That from their point of view, the Secretary of Education has the power because Congress awarded them the power. And, and it, 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 look, super legalese, listen, I went to a liberal arts college in the Appalachian Mountains. So look, I'm not trying to act like I'm a lawyer or anything to that degree. But the dissent says, this is, first they say, and they say this very early on, they say, this particular case is not something that should be in front of the Supreme Court. It should not be in front of this court simply for the fact that this is a squabble between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Congress and, and de facto, the president. Now, that's an argument as old as time. We know forever and ever the courts have, for the most part, tend to be the folks that kind of stayed in the background. And then when Congress and the president, the electoral branch, or excuse me, the executive branch, 
and the legislation branch get into squabbles, they sometimes jump in, but usually they try to jump or stay behind. In this particular case, the dissenting, the three dissenting judges say, we should not even be arguing or listening to arguments for this case because it's between you two. But in our opinion, based off the descriptions of the HEROES Act, the Secretary of Education has the power and the authority, and I want to read this here, says that, um, says Congress has given the Secretary of Education power to replace old provisions of the HERO Act with new, quote, terms and conditions, end quote, that Congress has given. So basically saying that Congress has given the Secretary of Education the power within these particular um, uh, acts that have been passed to not only cancel student loans, if you went to a for-profit college that has been defunded, not only if you were in the military and uh, affected a long-term disability, basically saying that this particular person, the Secretary of Education, has the ability to cancel student loans in many, many fashions that are a lot broader than the majority of opinion of the court says. So listen, legalese, I'm not going to get into it. I, I will listen. I will say this. Uh, even a broken clock is right two times a day. So I give, I do, I will give a little bit of credit to the, the majority opinion of the court system. They do make some really strong arguments as it relates to the way power is really distributed in the United States. But in the end, I think that it, it's a bad call. I think that when thinking of the financial health of the nation as a whole, and not just Mohila and not just the state of Missouri, which gets mentioned about 143 times. It's it's so much broader than that. So go back to episode on Friday. Uh, you can hear some more opinions and thoughts as it relates to the student loan uh, strike down and some of the effects that I believe and that we believe is really going to be uh, rippled through the nonprofit industry. I grew up in Philadelphia, and one of the things I really enjoyed about living in the city of brotherly love is access to all the basketball courts in the city. And basketball is a really big part of that Northeast, D.C., Baltimore, New York, Jersey area. There's just not a lot of space, so you didn't really get a whole lot of opportunities to play football or soccer, uh, especially if you, you're impoverished. And, and one of the things about growing up in Philadelphia is everybody knows the song to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And of course, Will Smith has a really, really popular part of the song. And the whole song is just a classic. The, the song deserves to be in the Hip Hop Hall of Fame, where he, he raps with DJ Jazzy Jeff. In West Philadelphia, born and raised, on the playground is where I spent most of my days chilling out, maxing, relaxing all, cooling all, shooting some b-ball outside of the school. And as a person who grew up in West Philadelphia, shout out to Daroff Elementary, Haddington Park area. As a person who grew up in Philadelphia, you absolutely love the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I know they have the remake right now, so maybe some of you all are watching it. And one of the things is I continued to play basketball even as I left elementary school, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and played basketball, you know, just on courts and random playgrounds uh, in middle school. And so one of the things for me is that 
once I started to get a little bit more autonomy, learn a little bit more about myself, as I said, you know, I want to be able to play for my high school basketball team. And so between eighth and ninth grade, I said, you know what? I, I, I was determined to apply and to try out for the high school basketball team. So I was practicing all through the summer of uh, between eighth and ninth grade. I begged my mom for a basketball court. So she gave me one. She she purchased me one of those portable basketball courts. We lived in an apartment complex. Funny enough, so we had to set it up in the apartment complex. the The management was not too thrilled about that. They would argue a little bit about it. But I played all summer, and I would play until the sun went down. And even when the sun went down, I kept playing. So when ninth grade started and basketball trials started, like I knew I was gonna be on the team, and I didn't even try out for junior varsity. I was I was so determined. I felt I was so good. I said, you know what? I'm just gonna go and try out for varsity. First day, it's a three day tryout. It's the first day of varsity tryouts. I'm watching people uh, do the junior varsity tryouts, and and I go to do the varsity, and the coaches just they just look at me and they go, no, you need to come back tomorrow, and you need to try out for junior varsity. And I was like, all right, whatever, no biggie. I show up the next day to do the junior varsity tryout, or excuse me, to do the the junior varsity tryouts, yes. And as I'm doing it, I'm realizing very quickly, I'm not that good. I couldn't do the sprints, I couldn't do the running, I I didn't have the conditioning, I didn't have the height, I couldn't jump. It, it It was all just bad. And I realized by the end of that first tryout, I was like, one, I'm not gonna make this team. And two, I realized how I look at myself in the mirror is not how society looks at me, but more than anything, I learned I was delusional. And I tell that story because one of the things I'm seeing in the industry right now, and this isn't anything new, but a lot of nonprofits are delusional. A lot of nonprofits look at themselves in the mirror and they see one thing, but that's not the reality. And look, being delusional in the nonprofit space is not always a bad thing. Sometimes you need to look at yourself as a skinny, you know, type of kid and go, you know, no, I have a ton of muscles, right? We, we all do this at times. We see ourselves in one light when that light may not be a reality. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes you have to be a little bit overconfident. Sometimes you have to throw a little bit of fake in it until you make it. But there are too many nonprofits in the industry that are just flat out delusional. They don't see themselves in the right light. They don't get the proper insights to really determine who they are or what they are. They really see themselves like me trying out for the basketball team. They think they can do it. They think they're good. And in reality, there's a lot of competition. In reality, they don't have the right pieces of information. In reality, and this is and this is all sizes. I've seen nonprofits that are big, that are very delusional, and I see nonprofits that are small, that are equally as delusional. And the, the, the problem with being delusional in the nonprofit space is that one, your nonprofit can fail. What is it like? Ten percent of all nonprofits in the U.S. any given year uh, go under, go belly up. Oftentimes it's because of the funding or the money aspect, but a lot of times it's culture, it's mission, it's placement, 
It's the way they spend their energy. It can be all types of things outside of just the X's and O's of an Excel spreadsheet, right? It can be so many different factors that come into place. And you're seeing this a little bit right now, just in the work environment, just in the for-profit space in general of a lot of folks that are like, no, I wanna work, but I don't wanna come into the office. And nonprofits and for-profits are delusional about people's desires to be able to work from home and to give a company or organization more time, more energy, more effort. And for the most part, 90%, 85% of the nonprofits, they know what they're looking for, they're specific, they're concrete, and they are wrapped in a form of reality in today's world that I think is really strong. But there are about 10 or 15% of these nonprofits that you you look at their description, they want a, a volunteer grant writer with five years experience, 10 years experience. They want a volunteer grant writer that's willing to give seven hours a week, 10 hours a week. I, I saw one, no lie, they were looking for a volunteer grant writer. This is an organization out of Michigan, uh, I think in the township of... You know, I can't even remember. It's somewhere in Michigan. It wasn't Detroit or, or Kalamazoo or Flint or anything like that, but it was it was a nonprofit. They were looking for a grant writer. They wanted six, five to six years, eight years experience, and they wanted the grant writer to commit to 10 to 15 hours a week for a year. Folks, you're delusional. Your nonprofit doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. In so many instances of the nonprofit space, you see this where I see where you're a nonprofit, you look across the street and you say, oh, that nonprofit, or I talked to uh, one of the, the staff members at that nonprofit or this nonprofit, and they said they have a staff member that's a volunteer who does 15 hours a week and they do grant writing and they brought in $100,000 a year. Folks, that's an outlier. There are too many instances of nonprofits trying to keep up with the Joneses without really looking at their own bank account. They're not keeping the receipts on themselves. So again, I was delusional thinking I was going to be on the varsity high school team, too skinny, too scrawny, no hops, nothing. And so I want to see nonprofits not be like me in high school thinking they could just go straight from uh, nothing to varsity. It's okay to take a step back and see what's really happening in society. Time for our favorite segment of the week, the non-profit horror story. And it's clear I'm gonna be doing these every single week. I've got a lot of great submissions, people from all over the US are giving me some really, really high level stories. And I've mentioned this on a couple of occasions where I'm very fortunate to have traveled and lived and explored so much of the United States of America. Still still have a lot of international travel I wanna do. Uh, definitely wanna sneak over to Africa. Had a girlfriend who was uh, from Ghana in high school and so she used to tell me about Ghana. So definitely wanted to visit there. Had a, an amazing an amazing mentor in Deborah Kaliru. Shout out to you, Deborah, who recently passed away. She is from Kenya and spent some time in the U.S. Then went back to Kenya. So definitely have a, have a lot of Southeast Asia I want to explore, and I definitely got to hit up South America. But I've explored all types of the U.S., and I've been very fortunate to live in every time zone 
in the contiguous United States, grew up in Philadelphia, went to middle school and high school in North Carolina, college in North Carolina, moved out to Seattle, lived there for about three years, did some international travel with my ex-wife. We ended up moving back to Philadelphia. Her and I lived in my mom's house for a little bit. That was, we ran out of money. That was not a fun time. And even lived in Kansas for six months, lived in Winfield, Kansas. If anyone's from from Winfield, hit me up and let me know on Instagram. So I've been very fortunate to travel all over the U.S. And one of the great things about travel, and it's one of my, one of my big passions. You know, some people have a passion for food, language, math, science, all types of things. But one of my big passions is travel because it opens the mind and gives me the ability to explore within myself while I'm exploring on the outside. And you meet so many amazing people. And in a lot of the work that I do, I'm traveling to all parts of the of U.S. I've had the ability when I was in Peace Corps to live in New Orleans for a couple of months. You're exploring Georgia. You're messing around in Oregon, a little bit of California. I've talked in depth about how I'm spending a lot of time in Texas and Arizona and, of course, New Mexico and Colorado. And when you're meeting folks from all different places, you get a deeper sense of the collective will of people. And there's so much division that happens in the world, and it feels like it's that way more than ever before. Even though a lot of people I know that are older than me say, no, the division still kind of feels about the same. To to a lot of folks, it can feel like it's more than it's ever been. And one of the, the interesting areas of division is student education. The way we go about raising our kids, the resources, the amount of time we invest in our young individuals as they grow and develop and eventually take over and lead our society in the prime of their lives. And with this next story, I had a chance to, to, to meet this individual on, on one occasion. And sometimes you can, you only meet people you know one time and you never see that person face to face ever again, but you may meet this person at a conference, a trade show, Maybe you just meet them in passing at a random event and you stay in touch with them. And I've stayed in touch with this next person. She sent me an amazing story. And it's one that really dives into how so much of us have a desire to see change. And when we see change in the world, we put our best foot forward and we put a lot of our time, a lot of our energy. And sometimes the results are not what you expect. So for today's nonprofit horror story, I received a not-so-out-of-this-world story from a good, an amazing associate and acquaintance in Ophelia. Ophelia writes, My nonprofit horror story is one for the books, and unfortunately, I don't think it is a rare one. Many years ago, as a 20-something teaching in public school, I saw a newspaper ad seeking teachers to come help start a new nonprofit alternative school targeting neurodivergent students who simply didn't fit the mold of traditional public school. Now, I had already been completely disillusioned by the public education system from a very young age, 
so you can picture the stars in my eyes as I read this newspaper ad. I went to a meeting the founder was holding at a public library and was even more convinced that this school's paradigm was the way of the future. I signed up, and for the first year of my commitment, I maintained my public school job as we worked to design curriculum and filed the necessary paperwork for starting this school. In year two, I worked odd tutoring jobs interspersed with our flagship day programs to give our, quote, founding families, end quote, those who had signed up for the very first year to start that following August, some taste of what they could expect. I worked hard toward the success of this alternative school, putting double-time hours in designing curriculum, networking for business contractors with whom we could offer things like parkour and nurse services, magical day-long scavenger hunts through museums, etc. I worked so hard and put so much time into it that I actually ended up getting a divorce during my time working toward opening this school. But at every turn, I noticed the initial founder always questioning the rules. For example, our nurse went over and over the law dictating that we could not give pain medications under any circumstances unless we had express permission of the parents. The founder kept arguing with her with questions that started with, quote, not even if, end quote. She got so fed up that I had to talk her out of quitting, not once, but twice. Finally, the end of fall came and we were ready to open the following August. We had only one more filing to finish up with the state to be an official nonprofit. We were waiting for that final filing to arrive any day when a friend of mine with whom we were contracting some of the outdoor excursions expressed concern over how the initial donations had been used. Since we did not have tuition to cover the expenses, we had been working off the generosity and the faith of a handful of initial investors who'd given our founder money directly in an unofficial capacity with the promise that we would use those funds to get us off the ground. You know, file paperwork, acquire medical and legal services for the school, etc. This friend's concerns were over some discrepancies between how much had been donated and how much had been spent. Now, this person had founded their own nonprofit and was familiar with the process. I brought these concerns up to our founder who confirmed that he had been, in fact, using donations to pay his own family's bills, which he justified with the fact that he had used a lot of his bill-paying money to get the school off the ground. Again, he didn't see the problem with breaking rules or trust if he saw a legitimate need. I quit that day and gave up on an amazing education opportunity for neurodivergent children who don't fit the system because of one man's egotistical presumption that he did not have to follow the rules of financial ethics. Since that day, I have been a part of many founding nonprofits and I'm always on the lookout for financial fraud, 
which makes me the naysayer as these organizations work toward 501c3s or whatever nonprofit status they are seeking. But I will welcome the rolling eyes at my suggestions of thorough documentation any day over the incredible despair that struck me and those founding families when we discovered that the school was not going to open because we had discovered the founder's refusal to honor the purpose of donations. A person I trusted wholeheartedly. I still have dreams of opening up a school of my own one day, but rest assured, it will be done the slow, right way. Thank you, Ophelia. That is a story that is one I wish I could say I haven't heard before. There are, and like you said in the very beginning, Ophelia, I don't think is a rare one as a story. There are tons of people from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, from Hawaii all the way to Miami that are starting nonprofits and a lot of founders, a lot of people that are entering this space or, or thinking of starting their own 501c nonprofit, the ethics, the, the morals can be a little loose. And it's so unfortunate when, of course, our my, my mind goes to the negative and I'm thinking in my mind all the things that this person has ruined, this founder, you're trying to start a school, you're, you're spending two years of your life, you're doing all these things to develop something for your community that you think is needed. And there are a lot of nonprofits that are truly needed in our society. And this sounds like one of those ones that could have been such a, such a blessing for so many people, for so many children, so many families. And yet this one person who, as you say, an egotistical, you use some great words, one man's egotistical presumption that he did not have to follow the rules of financial ethics. And we could talk about that for days because I've mentioned in a couple of previous episodes, I think it was episode nine on the McKenzie Scott effect, where I talk about a lady who was indicted for funneling $270,000 in cash into her own pockets. It's unfortunately a story that is as old as time. When money is involved, people will justify things their own way. But I don't want to do, I don't want to spend too much time on that. I want to give praise to you, Ophelia, and to all the people, the men, the women, the people across the, the nation who are starting nonprofits, who are putting their best foot forward. And for a lot of those folks, right, you're putting yourself forward, you're putting in the time, you're putting in energy, and something's going to develop. It may not always work, let's be honest. There are a lot of nonprofits that start, and five years later, they're not around. But you kind of do it. But in this case, to put that time in, to put that energy in, to get divorced while you're doing all of these things, and to have that happen is devastating. So thank you to you, Ophelia, for seriously just putting yourself out there. And yeah, sometimes you're young, you're bushy-eyed, you know, 
but you want to change the world. And there are a lot of folks that are not only just in their 20s, they're in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s and their 60s that see the world and they think and know to themselves that they can change it. And they see the nonprofit world as a space in which they can do it. So for you, Ophelia, and for all the Ophelias in the world, we appreciate everything that you're doing. It doesn't go unnoticed. All right, we've made it to the other side. It's a, it's a listen. Uh, they say 13 is not a lucky number, but here on the Nonprofit Insider, if you're an insider, it's always a lucky time to come listen in. Thank you so much. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care.